welcome everyone to another episode of From the Stands, the Cool Pick Show. I hope you're doing great on this Monday afternoon. Uh, on today's episode, we have Akil Augustine from the Raptors 905. Uh, this guy's multi-talented. He's on Raptors 905, Argos. Uh, I see this dude everywhere I go, so we're going to chat with him uh, about how everything has been going, his job, and how he got started, and so much more. Before we bring Akil in, just wanted to give a quick shout-out to our design team, Matt Creative and Matthew DeCastro, for their work that they put into the shows and the logos that you see ahead of uh, each episode. So let's get Akil in here. Get started. <clears throat> Hello, sir. How are you? I'm good, man. How you doing? Oh, man. It's another glorious Sunday day. That's, Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a little bit different seeing you out here. Usually I've seen you on the court, on the field, wherever it may be. But uh, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me, man. Um, I, I remember the first time I met you so long ago. And uh, you've been on your own journey. I'm proud of where you're at today. So keep doing your thing, kid. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, last time I think we saw each other in person was the Raptors uh, championship. Like, not the parade, but the, the lead up to it when they were um, when Raptors Square was going on, or Jurassic Park, rather, and, and all that. So, um, yeah, definitely when COVID is done, we are getting to a patio. We are watching some basketball. We are grabbing some drinks. Yeah, I'm excited, especially with the format the NBA has for this year. It's going to be super interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, before we get started and kind of dive deep into basketball and how you got started, um, I just wanted to do a check-in with you, see how you've been doing. Obviously, we've seen so much happening uh, lately on on the news, on social media, um, with Black Lives Matter and everything um, surrounding George Floyd and, and just the kind of the impact that it's had, not just in the United States, but also across Canada and everywhere. And just wanted to see um, how you've been doing with everything. Well, I mean, I'm actually kind of relieved because um, I'm one of those, well, I don't know, I don't want to say I'm one of those, but it's definitely been an issue that's been close to my heart my entire life. And um, to see it reach critical mass and to see people who traditionally kind of brushed it off or you know, just went about their regular day actively engage in the subject um, is super cool. Other thing that's super encouraging is the amount of actionability about what people want to do. Like, they just don't want to say, hey, I'm an ally. Um, but there's a lot of work happening behind the scenes. Um, I'm discouraged by some of the energy on social media just simply because I think, like, social media itself is toxic and there's a lot of virtue signaling in it. But um, I'm surprised. But, again, at the same time, we shouldn't be understanding that, you know, if someone 20 and, and younger right now, they, they've we're born into a world where, you know, we're fighting for women's rights against the patriarchy, um, gay rights, and now Black Lives Matters. So these kids have come up in a completely different type of water than we have, where I think, like, for someone like me, and I had to check myself recently, it's like, I'm a big fan of working within the structures of the politi of the of the current um, matrix that we live in. So I'm trying to penetrate corporate Canada and spread those messages and be very amicable and come with you know, a flower branch. I think for the kids, they, they just don't, they don't fuck with it. Like, I'm not a protester, right? I don't want to go out there in the streets until I know how to change something from the inside. But again, I grew up in it. And so I think for the kids, it's just like, 
no, we don't want to change it from the inside. We think it's ridiculous. We think this is not the way the world should work. And they're putting their foot down. And uh, it's inspiring for someone like me because you know, I, I have a different way of going about making change. I'm maybe a bit more amicable than the people 20 and under. But uh, I'm proud of them because this is their movement. This is their march. And I think they're going to change the world for, um, you know, for people with alternative sexual lifestyles, for women, for, for people of color and minorities. Um, so, you know, it's about the kids for me. I think I, they're, they're leading us through, through this whole journey. Yeah, definitely. And, and just to see, like, I know I've, I've had so many friends um, myself that have gone to rallies, whether it's been in Toronto or out here in Durham region. And it, it's truly like a remarkable sentiment in the sense that we're seeing um, just like the powerful message being encased in, in everyone kind of in the, in the population, just making it more um, direct and more aware as well. Yeah, it, it, it's time. And I think Corona had a huge role in it because normally when events like this happen, because they happen pretty frequently, sadly, um, we, we still have, you know, vacations coming up, work tomorrow, uh, the news cycle spins on, but I think during quarantine, we were all kind of sitting down and we were forced to sit with our feelings and we couldn't really run off to hide from them to go to an event or, you know, so I think a lot of people were forced to sit with their feelings and it's funny how the universe works because I don't think we would be in the position we are in terms of the opportunity to make drastic social change, um, if Corona didn't happen. Yeah, because we would be out doing everything that we normally would be doing. And, and to your point, we have that time now to sit down and reflect back. So we have that option or yeah. that opportunity to do so. So, well, it, yeah, it's just going to be a thing where it's going to be a situation where, uh, like, hopefully we, it gets to the better eventually and, and we're in the right spot. And we're. It's too late. It's already gotten better because the cat's out the bag, right? People are being exposed. I'm not a huge fan of cancel culture, but I don't think we can go back. You know, one of my favorite sayings about life is um, one of the best things the world's offered us is the fact that people die. And it might sound like a dark thing to you, but you got to understand, someone who's 100, who's 80, who's 90, they live in a world where, like, just saying the things we're saying right now, like Black Lives Matter, seems preposterous, right? And so, like, the youth, they didn't come up in that world. They come up in the world that you and I helped create. And so they come in a world of love and acceptance. So it's too late, man. It's too late. It's way too late. They're not going to be able to stop it. The women have taken power. People of other sexual identities have taken power. Everybody wants their piece of power. We're going to share it. We're going to have to. For sure. Um, well, let's transition into um, basketball and into your career um, a little bit. Um, so in the nineteen in yeah in the 1980s, you and your family actually immigrated or immigrated to Brooklyn, New York, um, which you and your sister then moved to Toronto. What was that whole experience like for you to go, to come to the States and then immigrate to Toronto and eventually go to Seneca to start doing broadcasting? Uh, well, you did your research, buddy. All right. Buddy, let's go. Um, you're like Nardwar out here. <laughs> uh, um, it was weird for me. I mean, it was, it was definitely a huge part of my story. Um, I think, you know, in a lot of, Religious circles and psychology circles, they say, you give, give me a child till they're seven, and I'll show you the man. So fortunately for me, I grew up in Trinidad and Tobago uh, up until I was about six. And then my family moved to New York City. Well, we went to Canada first, then my parents took the family in New York, and then we came back here. But I think um, 
the first six or seven years I was with my parents, and it was it was amazing. And I think after you know, moving being in Brooklyn wasn't that weird because Brooklyn was pretty black. But I think the biggest thing for me was um, coming to Canada, coming to Toronto. I think the first time I saw well, would have had to have been the first time I saw snow was in Canada, and um, just going to like you know, I grew up on the Danforth. So tremendous amount of Filipino, Italian, um, and I'm Rom- and I grew up in a Roman Catholic household. So for me, I didn't actually know any of these things. I was like eight or nine. I'm now being introduced to people of different cultures. Like everybody's either black or Indian in Trinidad. So I saw my first Filipino person, my first Greek person, my first Italian person, my first you know a white person that doesn't identify with another country. Like these were all new concepts to me. Um, and uh, I'll say this, I'm very thankful that um, I got to go through, you know, the stress of not growing up with my parents and stuff like that. I think there's something special about everybody's experience. I think one of the things for men is they grow up um, idolizing their father and they kind of like want to get their dad's pay, um, you know, approval for everything in their life. I think one of the gifts for me was because not growing up with my dad, my dad's a very strong-minded guy, but I think um, me and him don't share a lot of the principles because he had a very different life experience. So I think not be not having to grow up in the shadow of my parents, not having to adopt his, his religion, he's Rastafarian, not having to adopt his craft, his trades. I see that play out in a lot of guys uh, who have their dads. And so I think for me, it was just like a huge opportunity just to like kind of lift the roof off the building. Because I think even coming from Trinidad, like, we have very low expectations simply because of like, you know, the culture and, and um, what colonization has done to the island. I think being exposed to a place like Toronto especially growing up in downtown Toronto. Um, so much of my personality is from like people I ran into ideas. I got exposed to, uh, and it's such a rich, rich city in terms of the ability to experience things. So I think, uh, it was a blessing, but definitely a huge culture shift for myself. Cause remember like we got like 3 million black people in Canada, a country of 33 million. And, Growing up on death where there aren't a lot of black people unless you go to like the Blake houses or, uh, you know, like St. James town or maybe a Crescent town. So I think that was probably a little bit of a battle, but I think I got exposed to so much. I can, I compare Toronto to Rome, okay. you know, or Constantinople. This is like one of those like feature cities that when they talk about this period in history, they're going to talk about it. Like they talk about, you know, like, Egypt and stuff because I think we're doing some really good stuff because of the multiculturalism and you look at the problems humanity is confronting on a global scale. One of the answers to it is multi- multiculturalism, and we're a leader in that. Definitely. Now, when you um, when you came to Toronto, you ended up going to Seneca and studying broadcast journalism. What was your reasoning for wanting to get into broadcasting? It seemed easy. <laughs> it did though. Yeah. Um, my two options were like becoming a firefighter and then, well, I was, I, I honestly, coming out of high school, I didn't think I was going to college. I actually thought I was going to do something else. <laughs> something a little bit more dangerous. Don't say what, um, either that or construction work, okay. uh, just coming from where I came from. There's certain things holding me back in my life at that time, but, uh, I had a really awesome guidance counselor who kind of saw something in me. And so she forced me after I refused to apply to university to apply to college. So I picked firefighting and radio and television broadcast journalism. And then I found out you had to know a certain amount of math to be a firefighter. And I was like, I'm not doing that. Just not. I suck at math. 
So I went and I did the radio and television broadcast journalism thing just to kill time, really. It was community college, a two-year program, which took me four and a half years to finish, by the way. But uh, <laughs> um, I guess Stuart Scott's a big reason. I watched a tremendous amount of TV. Like, it's ridiculous. So much of who I am is just built off, like, people I found entertaining on TV or people I found inspiring. So, like, I think that's the story right there. Now, who's your, who's your biggest inspiration on TV? I was thought it, it's funny because I was watching, I was talking with Brendan Dunlop and, uh, uh, and uh, a couple episodes ago, and he was saying that he, he wanted to get in broadcasting because of Ray Romano on Everybody Loves Raymond. Yeah, I mean... The original storyteller that got me interested in the ability to tell, tell stories is this guy right here. His name is Shelton Lee. Okay. But in Brooklyn, New York, they call him Spike. Um, and I think um, that movie right there, because, like, funny story about that movie. So my I probably, my family got to Brooklyn in, like, 87, 88. I was in Canada by 89. That movie was filmed in my mom's neighborhood in 89 or 88. And came out, and then so that movie was always like a link to like where my parents were. So it really made me feel close to them to see the stories coming out of Brooklyn. But I think it started with Spike Lee, one hundred percent. He he was the one that got me interested. Then I think sports became a possibility due to Stuart Scott. But as I grow and become like more of a man and a storyteller, I think Dave Chappelle's probably had the biggest impact on me as like a man and <laughs> and a storyteller. Thank you, Aluda. <laughs> Um, that's incredible. Yeah. Like, I mean, Spike Lee does so much in the basketball world now, even, yeah. and, and it's crazy. I always get entertained when I see him courtside, um, and just <laughs> doing his antics. It's incredible. So he's uh, passionate and there's no reason to be passionate in the Knicks game. So it's amazing that you can get that excited. <laughs> well, Hey, you're all, you're passionate about everything. So it, <laughs> we see where it comes from. Like, I get it. Um, now, let's talk about sports, but also more so about basketball. You're currently the courtside reporter and color analyst for the Raptors 905. What made you want to get into basketball versus another sport? Oh, my neighborhood, man. Growing up in my neighborhood, all we did was play basketball. I came from Trinidad with soccer, with everything. Um, and then when I got to Canada, you know, the funny thing is for me, people keep saying basketball is not big in, 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 in Toronto. I may have landed in the weirdest neighborhood in the city then because I'm paid. Basketball's everything. Like, everybody, like, I couldn't tell you when I wasn't playing basketball. And I'm not even good at playing basketball. I'm a good football player. Like, I I, I played high-level football. But, like, if you have a moment, like, in my neighborhood, we played basketball. All the guys I knew played basketball. All the older guys I knew, there's a big underground basketball scene, Top Gun, Liberty Barber, each one teach one tournament. It was really, and it, the problem was it was probably pretty segregated because of a small community of, like, Black guys from, like, Malton, Regent Park, mostly West Indian descent, all basketball players from the city, right? So, like, it was a really small community, but we played, and the, and the way we relate to the game, I didn't realize, as someone new to Canada, that basketball wasn't big in Canada because my world on paint, on Gerard, on Donlands, on Queen by Jimmy Simpson, all we did was play basketball. So I, I didn't know that. And plus, like, I had cable, I got WGN, I saw Bulls games, when the Raptors came, and then I started to read the articles in the paper, finding out, like, oh, not everyone actually knows about basketball here was kind of a shock for me. But uh, basketball is a huge part of my neighborhood. Um, 
my best friend is a captain of the national team. All my best friends got ball scholarships. I'm probably the only one that didn't play basketball at a high level out of my close social circle. So I don't know, man. Ball is life. It's funny that you mentioned about how tight it was in your community. It, it reminds me, I'm really blanking on the name of that movie, but where uh, it's a younger guy that dresses as an older guy and he comes into the court and just schools everyone. Um, I think Shaq, like, I think Shaq, and there was a bunch of NBA guys that were in that movie. I'm really blanking on the name. It's going to bug me. Um, but uh, that, that's what it sounds like. It's just such a tight-knit community. And, um, and yeah, it's they, they say Canada is not a basketball community, but you look around and it really is. And I think, um, leading into my next uh, question, I think now it's even more on the map. But what was the experience like for you when you were able to see the Raptors face off against Golden State in Toronto um, through that series, but then also win their first NBA championship and, and also see, because you got you work with the 905, seeing some guys from the 905 on that squad? Well, I mean... Before I became the 905 guy, I was like a full-time Raptors guy and still am. So within the organization, uh, watching that journey was surreal. I'll say that. I'm not a big Warriors fan. I'm a Warriors pre-Kevin Durant fan and post-Kevin Durant, not during the Kevin Durant generation. But um, the only word I can use to encapsulate what last year was like was surreal. It was unreal because I think I dissociated from it a lot of times because I had to wake up the next morning, go to work, do interviews, still keep my head in the game. But just to, to like be able to say that the Toronto Raptors won a championship and that I was involved in some small, small, small way with, with helping bring that, that kind of vibe and energy to the city was unreal. Um yeah, man, it was honestly, I, I still sometimes don't think it happened, but I got the ring in the other room to prove it. But yeah, it's just, it's really weird, man. Honestly, guys, because you got to understand, like, I'm a basketball guy, like, for life. Like, the NBA has been a, a huge part of who I am, and its its players have been some of the biggest role models in my life. And to know that Kobe Bryant won five championships, Michael Jordan won six championships, Akeem Olajuwon won two championships. And these are the three guys that I think inspired me the most as a young man. And to say I got one of the rings that they got due to the franchise I work for is it's a hard concept to wrap your head around. Yeah, I mean, with me, obviously, I got one of the replica rings and I picked up one of the little mini O'Brien trophies. But I was like, this is still it's it's crazy. It's unreal. Um, and hopefully, like we see another one sooner than later. Yeah, um, but I have to say, if you ever decide to get into basketball and you need a, uh, um, a uh, what are they called, like a media media rep, uh, I saw a co comment from Miss Aluda saying that how emotionally intelligent you are with every conversation you put. <laughs> Hire her right now. Yeah, you know, she's she's actually doing a pretty good job. This is uh, her um, her uh, audition, and uh, she's she's strong, Aluda. Good notes. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, now, you also do a lot of work at Maple Leaf Square, Jurassic Park, um, and also at the Argos Games. And yeah. how has that whole experience been for you in broadcasting so far? Just getting to interact with fans such as myself, that's how we met. Um, but then also seeing how much hype there is in, in game stadiums in Toronto. Well, I'll say the broadcasting has played a huge role in me becoming the man I am because I think one of the things about broadcasting is it forces you to, well, if you're going to do it and you want to do it well, 
Um, and Aluda kind of Aluda alluded to that idea with her comments, but um, I think I had to grow as a person in order to become an on-air talent because I think I had an initial skill set which was just raw energy. Like when I, when Cabby first found me, I was just that kid, like you know, like hey guys, what up? What's going on? Welcome to the show. Right, that was really me. And um, it's kind of you're a one-trick pony if you're relying only on energy, which is kind of like a cornerstone of my personality. So I think in my desire to become better, I took acting courses. The acting courses, I had a really dope acting coach, Earl Nanu. He got me into certain types of spirituality. And then in terms of like body language, I had to learn body language. So I studied body language, voice tonality control. So, I mean, just become, it's kind of like, so there's this idea that uh, Jordan Peterson says a lot. It's like, some people want, like, some people are nothing, right? And then like, oh, I'm going to decide to be a plumber. It's like, oh, you're a plumber. But then when you go about the task of becoming a plumber, what you end up becoming when you like, step through that doorway is you're not just a plumber. You're a business owner. You're a community leader. You're a father. You're a husband. You're blah, 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 blah. But you became all that by making the initial decision to become a plumber. So by my making the initial decision to become a broadcaster, it's like when you pick up one end of a stick, you pick up the other end too. My, my thirst for attention and my lust for people watching me came with the responsibility a la Spider-Man that, okay, if they're going to watch me, they better be watching me do something positive. And if they're going to listen to me, I better have something to say, right? So originally it started as a selfish way to feed my needs, to get attention. But then when you have that power now, it's like, okay, how do you utilize it? How do you use it? And so I think broadcasting has allowed me to kind of step outside of what the old limitations of my personality were and become more if that yeah, makes sense. It does. And and you're you're so like you are all over social media. It's great. I've seen videos of you when you've done interviews in uh, I think it was like Trinity Bellwoods, yeah. um, when everyone was out there. I didn't know it was gonna be like that. I had no clue. Hey, but it, but again, that's that's the whole thing is you just yeah. do it for the sake of doing it and getting those those speeches out and getting those interviews done and, and kind of just making that name for yourself as well, right? Yeah, a lot of people best like, oh, you're doing these interviews. What are you doing them for? Or like, oh, like, what's the, oh, are you starting something? Or, and I think I, when I mentor kids, I talk about this a lot. It's like, not everything has to be a company. Not everything has to be a production. Not everything has to be sold. I think if you really are serious about what you're doing, some of it's got to be free. Like, some of it's just got to be for the sake of doing it. Some of it's got to be for the sake of becoming better at it. So when I went down to Trinity Bellwoods that day, is because I hadn't filmed a show in three months. I hadn't done anything on camera in a long time. And, you know, a lot of my journalistic principles come from my basketball life. It's like, I'm a hard worker. Kobe Bryant was my hero as a young man. So I have to work harder than you. I have to be out there doing the task, putting in the work. So I was just walking around the city for no reason, just interviewing people, just, you know, to find out how people felt and to, Make sure I remember how to ask a question because it's what I do. And I think it's, it's not just what I do, it's my gift. And by the time I'm 90, I want to be able to say, like, I, I did the most I could do with that skill set and kind of shifted some shit with it. But I don't think you'll ever have to worry about losing it because it's like riding a bicycle. You'll never forget it. So. <laughs> well, you've never seen me ride a bicycle then, man. Hey, man, come out to Carl. There's a great, great back. Or bike path, we'll hit up some interviews on the way. We're good. I tore up my knee on my bike. It's ridiculous. Oh man, that's yeah. brutal. <laughs> um, 
talking about actually basketball and, and some injuries, but also um, and some acting, um, a friend of mine, uh, I heard, so this comes from a fan question, actually. I heard that yeah. you played hoops at Mega City, and my colleague Javid says you flop way too much in Mega City and that you're a great actor. What's your response to Javid? Did you say I flopped or I fought? Flopped. Okay, good. Because I did both. <laughs> um, I can't, okay, so you want to be completely honest? Sure. Basketball's always been a place where I've always gotten way too competitive. And we were talking about that journey of growing up. I, I think one of the biggest challenges for me was, actually, funny enough, Nike sent me to a sports psychologist or therapist when I was doing this thing with them a couple of years back. And she t- told me something. Um, it was it was a really great way to like encapsulate what my problem is, right? <laughs> and so she said, so anybody who's seen me play basketball, I, I'm very competitive. But once the ref and the ref starts to interject himself or his personality into the game, I often play more to the ref than the game. And she identified that within my personality, it's um, I have a huge distaste for authority. Okay. And so on the basketball court, the only way you can show authority is by playing. What up, Siobhan? But there's another authority figure in the ref. And so I think it's something that plays out in my life all the time because I'm always speaking truth to power. I don't like to feel victimized. I don't like to see other people treated poorly. And I have an extremely big mouth so it's been a big part of my growth as a man to not bark back or react when i'm in a situation that i don't agree with and uh (laughs) it comes out most on the basketball court well it's just funny yeah because like so uh javid is a colleague of mine and when i told him i was uh having you on my show he's like Yo, ask him about Mega City and all this. and uh, That's why I thought he said fought, because to be honest, I mean, there's some bad stories about me out there. I'm not going to lie. I'm having, I, I, the reason why I want to be a great guy is because maybe there were times when I wasn't the greatest guy. You know what? We'll have to have a, a, a virtual shot be you and Kevin, and we'll, we'll hash things out. We'll no, let's not do that. No. <laughs> let's, not, let's not reminisce. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Um, let's chat about the community, though. You do so much in your community, like you do with every other sport, um, from being a founder member, founding member of the Hoop Factory Basketball Camp to being part of the Northern Kings uh, AAU program. Uh, there's been so much great work that you've done. Um, what has been the reason or the drive for you to give back to the community? I wouldn't be where I'm at today without the kindness of strangers. Uh, I didn't grow up with my parents. I didn't grow up with uh, a lot of family around. And I think there are a lot of people who played huge roles in getting me to where I'm at today, which is a very fortunate and comfortable position. And I know that I didn't get here by myself. Right? I, talk, I mentioned my guidance counselor already. I mentioned Cabby already. I got to talk about my sister and my cousin. I got to talk about some of my bosses like Aaron LaFontaine. I got to talk about a random stranger who, who, you know, there's so many people who've played a role. And, 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 and I think a big part of that too is by not growing up in like a traditional family structure, like I know some people like family first, family first. It's never been my mentality because I feel like if you're always looking out for your family, you're kind of creating a border around yourself. Like, you're not really taking care of the greater community at large. 
And I realized that if everybody thought family first, I would have been the first person to die, right? Because, like, where's my family to protect me? But not everyone thinks like that. A lot of people don't think family first. They think people first. And I think that's a very important um, concept, especially for someone like me who could benefit from people thinking that way, right? I mean, and you think about what people are doing right now with this, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, fighting the patriarchy, pride, um, there's so much of that that's needed. Like, I think if we keep putting family first, it's a very small group. It's going to continue to put us at odds with any group that's outside of our family. And for me, I grew up not with a lot of family, but my friends have become my family. My coworkers have become my family. Like, I depend on people who aren't brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, moms, and dads. I depend on these people for my livelihood, for my mental health, for, you know, my feeling of nurturance and sustenance. So I have a larger concept. Not that, you know, I don't know. I just feel differently than a lot of the people I'm around. Like, I'm not a family first guy. Like, I want to have kids too, but I, I want to take care of your kids too. Like, I just don't, I'm not going to put the border around myself so close to me. I just want it to be really big. I want to have a really big community because I think we're stronger like that. For sure. And I'll actually, I'm going to quote uh, another uh, gentleman I interviewed, Damon Allen. He had a really good, uh, like, uh, philosophy where you have to have mind, body, and soul because without those three things, if you picture those three things as a tripod, you're standing on your feet. But if you lose one of them, then you're going to fall over, right? Uh, and I, I heard that. I was like, yo, yo, I'm borrowing this for future. Cause yep. It's it's so dead on and so, like, right to the point with it's true. It's You have to focus on all three um, to have that kind of proper mental health. Yeah, you, you think about you can you, you protect your family all you want. But if your neighbor's house is, like, but if you're, like, your entire neighborhood is rotten, your house is going to go down too, right? So you can't just worry about yourself. I think there's a lot of that going on. Where people are, we're a very selfish community. We all live in our own apartment by ourselves. We pick what we want. Like we're so, as a community, we've bought individualism since like, you know, the 60s. We've bought so much into individualism. And now like we're, 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 we're like bouncing from individualism to now group identity. I think like we need to like find that common middle ground. Definitely. Um, talking about that middle ground and, and everyone that you've kind of mentioned, is there one person that kind of stands out um, among the others that have helped propel you to be the person that you are today? My big sister. My big sister was seven years old and I was four years old the first time we were left by ourselves. I'll show you that. She was probably like eight or nine, ten when we moved to Canada. And she's taking care of me every step of the way. Um, She's my heart. I don't know what to say. She's, um, when I lost my scholarship, dropped out of school. She paid for me to go to school when I was homeless. Found me a home. When I was hungry, she fed me. You know what I'm saying? Like, when I was angry, she calmed me down. Um, she's an amazing woman. Uh, she had a hard life, and now she's doing amazing things as an executive. Killing it. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I think, um, I was very fortunate to be paired with someone like that to have this journey of life with. That's fantastic, man. Yeah, because everyone, it's, it's going to obviously be different for everyone. But yeah. at the end of the day, as long as you have that one person that's kind of with you through everything, the hard times, best times, all that, it's it's that's the most important aspect of it all. Yeah, she's like a mirror. She's been through everything I've been through and more, so I can kind of like gauge how far we've come by looking at her. That's great, man. Um, we had a question coming in the chat uh, a little while ago. Um, asking about the NBA this year and who you think is going to win the NBA title this year 
with the way that the new format is and the way that the season's going to be uh, portrayed and everything this year. See, this is a trap season. Like, you can make a call, and I will make a call. Um, I always vote with my heart, though. I'm not an analyst. I am a, I'm, I'm a, I'm real. Lakers are going to win the championship. Lakers win the championship. Lakers Raptors in the finals. Okay, but I will say this about what's happening. <laughs> it could be someone completely different because by eliminating eight teams, you've eliminated off nights, you've eliminated rest nights in the build-up to the regulars, to the, to the playoffs, right? So this is basically going to be like, however long it lasts, it's going to be like March Madness. You're playing, and you're getting a one day off, and you're playing intense games. So it's either team you're going to start throwing games, like in terms of like, okay, we're down by 20 in the third, we're not putting our stars back in because we need to juice their legs the next game. Or someone's going to like beat themselves to death to get good seating and then get eliminated in the first round because it's going to be such an intense experience. And then emotionally, you're adding the factor of being isolated and then being with your family all the time. Like at least if you're a player, like you can, you can kind of separate, okay, and lock in focus. I'll be alone now. Then I'll go family time here. It's like, no, if you're bringing your family, they're in here. You know, like you really have to find a new way to like function your daily routine, create space, create habits. So I think the biggest thing about this thing is going to be the basketball. It's going to be all the ancillary things around basketball that kind of complicate your ability to play basketball. And also, Lakers, Lakers. With all the uh, with all of the tests too, and all the extra protocols that they're going to be doing on top of being isolated, that's also going to take a huge toll as well. I don't want anybody knows swabbing me. Have you seen what that looks like? That looks painful. My actually, a friend of mine uh, just had. didn't have to go, but he was, um, long story short, he was kind of seeing this girl, and the mom wanted, hey. <laughs> the mom wanted to get him, or to have him tested to make sure, like, everything was good, so he's going to get tested, I think, today or tomorrow, so I told him, man, I'm like, dude, like, good luck with that, but I've oh. seen the photos, and I was like, it wouldn't be so bad if it was just, like, a little bit ways, but, like, I heard they stick it all the way up, and I was like... Dude, like, no, like, I'll go if I have to, but otherwise, like, uh, isn't that for everything? Don't get me wrong. Like, I, I want to I'm isolated. But it's crazy. That's going to be like something you're going to have to ask on the first date from now on. Like, hey, by the way, have you been tested? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just add it to the list, man. Crazy. The new normal. Oh, no kidding, eh? Um, well, talking about the new normal, but also more so about when we go back to normal life, what's some advice that you would give to like a, someone watching that may want to get into broadcasting or may want to get into the world of sports uh, to some degree? What kind of words of wisdom would you uh, like to share with those, uh, those individuals? So I'm kind of moving out of the advice-giving phase of my life because what I'm learning is everybody already knows. Okay. And what we're doing is we're telling people our own shit, right? And we're adding noise to their natural frequency. I don't know if you're going to hear this answer everywhere, but, like, I believe, like, I'm 37 now. And I'm like... No, you're not. That, yeah, 37. And it's 17. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Okay. Which is work with kids. But I think I had to go through a path of answering all the questions, the concerns, feeding my ego, like learning how big I could be. I had to go through all that stuff. But at the end, I was going to get to where I needed to get to. 
And I think we got to have more faith in trusting each other and listening to each other. I think, um, because I think one of my faults is I love to give advice. Like, I, I had to check myself over the last couple of years because, like, I'd meet someone and I wouldn't agree with something they're doing or I think they could do it better. Like, this is what you got to do, man. You got to read this book. You got to go to this course. You got to eat this. You got to do that. And then I'm just realizing, like, that's not me I'm talking to. Those are the things that I needed to do. So I still give advice, but in a different way. And all that was to preface how I give advice. So the only people I give advice to, and this is why I give my phone number out when people ask, when like they're curious, like I, like, I need to talk to you. I need to hear how confident you are. Because sometimes it's all about like whether you're ready to trust yourself and take that path. Or if you're not ready to trust yourself, then the only thing I would offer you is some information on tapping into trusting yourself. Right? Like, gotcha. I think somewhere down deep inside, like, I'm never even to get inside of you to find out what that little radio in your heart, what signal it's blasting. I can never get there. But I can get, but and I don't think I can get you there either. But I think you could get yourself to the point where there's so little distraction, so few alternative voices. Your mom's not in your ear telling you you gotta get married. Your dad's not in your ear telling you you gotta work in his field. You know, Culture's not telling you you got to buy a Mercedes Benz. If you can just quiet all that shit for a couple minutes and just really tap into yourself, an answer will come. That's great, man. And yeah, it's, it's all about following your own path and, and getting to where you want to see yourself being at the end of the road. Yeah. So, well, thank you so much, Akil, for taking the time. Uh, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. And like I said, I'm. Hold me up to that that offer because once things get back to a bit of a normalcy, uh, beers and drinks on a patio on me. We're gonna go and just catch up um, and see how things are going. Yeah, but it's crazy. Look, like this broadcast day is nuts. Like, look at you. The first time I met you, I would have never thought you would be the type of guy to host his own show, right? I had made my judgments about you. I thought you were a little bit more reserved, a little bit more shy. But through what you're doing right now, you know, you're growing as a person. You're a very strong communicator and a good interviewer now. That's amazing. That's, that's that's the kind of thing that we're here to do. So congratulations to you, man. Keep doing your thing. I really appreciate it, man. All right. Until next time, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Peace out. Batman out.